Well, welcome to Trinity Church. Uh, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we do a type of teaching called expositional teaching, preaching. Uh, if you're not familiar with what that means, that means we, we work our way through God's Word, usually going through whole books of a Bible, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. Basically, we want to hear from God. We want to let God's Word speak not focus on our pet issues. Uh, what, what do we think you guys need to hear? We want to preach the entirety of the counsel of God. And uh, we're, we're in the book of Daniel, and uh, we're going to be getting to some pretty uh, difficult uh, passages uh, coming up here. We're not skipping over them. We're not... Uh, it, it, we're good. We, we've got most of it. Let's go to... Uh, some other book. We're going to be working our way through some very difficult uh, passages. So uh, pray for your pastors. <laughs> we're going to need a lot of it. Uh, but today we're in uh, the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. Uh, Daniel, part of the Old Testament uh, writings. Uh, God's people are in exile, both the nation of Israel and Judah. This was a difficult time. Uh, for God's people, because it felt like they had lost their identity. There was no temple uh, to go to to worship, no submission to the king from the line of Judah. And where was God in all of this? You know, how could this be a good uh, thing? Yet, yet God is still very much at work in the faithful remnant, remnant like Daniel and his three friends. If you didn't get a listening guide, uh, feel free to lift your hand up. Uh, DJ will get you one from the back. I'll just aid your listening, give you a place to take notes. And we're in the uh, Aramaic portion of Daniel. No worries. A couple more chapters. We're going back to Hebrew. Uh, but the Aramaic chapters uh, 2 through 7 uh, forms a chiasm. Basically what that means, if you might remember, that sounds like a word I heard in English class, but I don't remember what the heck that means. A chapters, chapter 2 is parallel to chapter 7, 3 with 6, 4 and 5 uh, go together. So this one, uh, chapter 5, goes with the previous chapter uh, as we studied uh, last week. And at first, you might not see many similarities uh, with this episode and the one of the pagan king converted uh, to God, the one true God from last week. And, and certainly the reactions of the kings are uh, quite different. But uh, look, at, look at a few similarities here. We have two proud Babylonian kings who both get humbled. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, as you might remember from last week, went insane. And there's a sort of insanity going on in this passage. I love how Calvin says it. Their madness was more kindled when they were roused by the heat of wine. Yeah, we got, we got to have some good stuff here. And uh, Belshazzar is judged in light of what uh, Nebuchadnezzar learned about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, from last week. So you might wonder, why am I so excited about preaching uh, this passage? Well, well, let me explain. The king gets a little tipsy by, by verse 2, and then a whole bunch of crazy stuff goes down. And uh, need, need I say any more? <laughs> this is good. Uh, and, and that just brings me back to how could I not think of my uh, night auditing days in... <laughs> In downtown Louisville, just observing the effect of bourbon on guests. Uh, one, one of my favorite parts uh, about dealing with intoxicated guests is that uh, people start doing things they normally wouldn't do. And one of my least favorite parts about dealing with intoxicated guests is people start doing things they normally wouldn't do, like eating White Castle. <laughs> <laughs> or inserting their credit cards, thinking that'll open their doors, or asking me, the auditor, if I'm a dealer. No, no, I'm not. Of course not. And all I knew was coming into my shift, I didn't know what was going to happen, 
something crazy is going to go down. Uh, some of those probably would have never guessed that one moments will probably happen, and we'll just see. It, it was interesting seeing them check in. These are dignified people, you know, company executives, pilots, bankers, and then 3 a.m. finding them passed out in their underwear in the stairwell or, you know, wearing the second floor mat as one's pants. Like, that's, that's, uh, there's a difference. It really is. You know, and the, the um, hallway corner does not resemble the bathroom. Just so you know, I, I, I don't see any resemblances in my bathroom. I, I don't see how people, some crazy stuff would go down. And that brings us to our passage today. <laughs> so uh, find with me Daniel chapter 5, and let's see what happens. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever! Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because of an excellent spirit knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems which were found in Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king and the king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretation and solve problems." Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be a, the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. 
Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed to grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house you have brought in before you, And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parison. This is the interpretation of the manner. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And pray with me. Father God, I pray you'd give us eyes to see you in this passage so we would uh, come uh, to your word to learn from you. I pray that we would uh, see uh, ourselves in in this passage, that this applies not just to the sinners out there, but to the sinner in here. It applies to us. And I pray that we would be changed by the work of your spirit. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. So that was a long chapter. What just happened? Well, Belshazzar was the king of Babylon. This is about 30 years or so uh, since the last chapter, chapter 4. He's called the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Not literally his son, but the son father, uh, just like in Hebrew, also in Aramaic, is a very uh, general term that can be used to refer to, you can call someone your father who's actually a a predecessor or ancestor, that uh, Belshazzar is highlighting his desired connection uh, to Nebuchadnezzar here. What is the, the state at the time? This is still Babylon, uh, but, but things aren't going to so well. They have just suffered a major defeat. The Medes and the Persians are closing in on the capital. But, but at the same time, Babylon seems, seems still pretty good. They uh, have the Euphrates River flowing right through the city. Huge walls, food supplies to last years. This isn't Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, uh, but, but there's a reason that dream a couple chapters ago uh, pictured Babylon as the head of gold. And, and what does King Belshazzar do? Well, he, he throws a big party and uh, invites approximately a thousand of his leaders, wives, concubines. You shouldn't be surprised by this. This was very par for the course. The kings at this time were well-known for throwing a lavish feast. But, but why a big party? This isn't just for camaraderie. This isn't just, hey, we have to eat anyways, so why don't you eat at my place? 
a type of a thing. This is a prime opportunity for the king to bask in his glory and claim honor for himself. And it says here that he uh, tasted the wine. Although sometimes this refers to like the ceremonial uh, first drink. In light of verse 1, that they're already drinking, and Belshazzar uh, tastes the wine and what he does afterwards, it's pretty clear that he's getting a little bit uh, tipsy here. Because look at what he thinks is a good idea. Convinced that this is going to showcase his glory at the feast in front of all his nobles, officials, wives, concubines. What does he do? He brings out the temple vessels for the next round of drinks. These were the temple vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon. Uh, It is not normal for kings at this time to take out vessels like that and use it for the next round of drinks. A superstition alone would guard from using any sort of sacred vessels. But as we all know, when alcohol is involved, pretty much anything is in play. So this is extreme sacrilege to take out these temple vessels. Uh, Euphrim the Syrian gets it right. Under the influence of wine, he commanded that they bring the vessels from the sanctuary and did not hesitate in showing them to his lords and concubines and other guests as he intended to use them for a profane symposium. His father had taken those vessels from Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar had conquered the city and had destroyed it. Nonetheless, he had preserved them with holy devotion. Belshazzar went beyond any limit. So so what is he saying in bringing out these vessels? Well, he's displaying his arrogance here in bringing the vessels out. He's boasting in his defeat over the Jews. He's saying that he has power over their former owners, the Jews, that uh, these are valuable vessels of gold, silver, and that honor which formerly belonged to the Jews and to uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now belongs to him, and he repurposes these vessels uh, for his gods and claims that glory for himself and his gods. And look how the narrator describes such gods. It happens over and over again in this passage. Gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Why does he describe it this way? It's because that's all they are. And then the hand starts writing on the wall, verse 5. This is definitely a freaky experience as we don't even see a body. And even scarier when you realize this is actually happening. This isn't just the, the wine having its effect on it. This is actually going down. There's a little bit of wordplay going on here. The, the word for bringing in the vessels is used again here for the hand appearing. Basically, the idea is that you, Belshazzar, brought in the vessels, and therefore you also brought in the hand. The handwriting is a divine reaction to his disgusting display of arrogance. He has brought it upon himself. It says here, the wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, plain view, plenty of illumination for all to see. And Belshazzar loses it in terror, demonstrating signs of severe panic attack or something crazy going on. It, Brightness in his face changed. Thoughts alarmed him. The knees, his knees knocked together. I love this. The knots of his loins are loosened. And he calls out in strength for wise men to come in and read what's on the wall and tell him what it means, promising them great reward for anyone who accomplishes such a feat. But it says here they can't read the writing or make known the interpretation. So let's stop right there. Wait, 
we, we see later in the passage, it's four Aramaic words. And if, if you know, the Aramaic was the common language of the day. So how can these guys not, not, you know, I can see how they don't get the interpretation, but why does it say they can't even uh, read the writing? Well, scholars go all over the board on this one. Uh, provides plenty of material uh, for them to beef up their commentaries. Uh, here are just a few options. Some have supposed, well, maybe all these wise men are too drunk. Possible, but you got to think that somebody in there is, you know, not that wasted to just read four Aramaic words. Come on. Uh, some have theorized that it's written in an abnormal way, like written vertically, uh, use, using gematria where you use uh, numbers to symbolize letters. That, that, that's possible. But at the same time, there, there's all these wise men. They've done crossword puzzles before. Uh, it, it's, you know, I find it a little unlikely that they couldn't uh, figure out uh, these four words. You know, some see it uh, that the king is, is the only one who sees the writing. And that's possible, but it seems like the rest of the passage is highlighting that it's on this white plaster, the opposite the lampstand, for everyone to see. They're not questioning this king's uh, sanity or senses that he's seeing a writing that everyone else doesn't. Uh, see, and they bring in Daniel for the interpretation because they, they believe there's something, something there. Uh, my, my take on this, by no way inspired, but uh, I take it to be uh, that it was literally written up there in unpointed Aramaic. What does that, that means there's no vowels written. And you say, well, how do you read unpointed when you don't have vowels? Well, usually pretty easily. Because context helps you provide the, the required vowels. The problem here is there is no context. There are just four Aramaic words on the wall. And they don't make any sense together. How, how can they, you know, they, well, that looks like that, but it doesn't make sense as if they were, like, pulling out their dictionaries, like, no, 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 there, there's got to be a different word. Put some different vowels in there to give us some statement that makes a, a little sense that uh, the translation here is tied to interpretation. If the ability to, to read it is tied together with uh, the ability to interpret it, and they, they can't do either of those. So terror befalls the king. Uh, the failing of this interpretation team certainly doesn't help Belshazzar's condition or that of his nobles. And, and then enters the queen. Now, really, this is the queen mother and not one of Belshazzar's wives. It's maybe Belshazzar's mom has firsthand experience uh, seeing uh, Daniel's interpretation abilities and encourages uh, the king, letting him know that Daniel can reverse what has happened to him. Daniel can settle the thoughts uh, of his mind that alarm him. Daniel can change the color of his face back. And, and the king uh, takes that advice. I, I love how the narrator highlights that both the king and the queen mother express the work of God, though, in pagan terms. That they're certainly not converted individuals here, but they recognize the work of God's spirit, the superiority of Daniel's uh, God and Daniel's God's knowledge over that of their own gods. And, and how does Daniel respond? Well, he starts off by re refusing the gifts. Uh, this is included both as evidence that Daniel is a true prophet. He's not in it for the money, for the fame, for the power. And also a stinging rebuke to the king that he can't buy 
the interpretation. His, his money can't uh, make it happen, just like it, it didn't work with the, the wise men of Babylon. And then Daniel gives him a sermon here. It's not just the interpretation. Provided no extra charge to Belshazzar. And he reminds him of the story from last week and the last couple weeks as we've studied chapter 4. Remember 30 years prior, Belshazzar certainly knew a little bit of history of the throne and he should have learned from Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's disastrous pride. He didn't though. He should have responded like Nebuchadnezzar, without having to go through what Nebuchadnezzar had to go through uh, to learn that uh, Daniel's God reigns and rules the kingdoms of earth. Uh, He didn't learn that. He demonstrated even greater pride than Nebuchadnezzar, doing something that even Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have dreamed of doing. And look how Belshazzar's sin is described. He You lifted yourself up, not just against anyone, against the Lord of heaven. He praised gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which can't see, hear, or know anything. He refused to honor the God that has his very breath in his hands and can dispose of him in an instant. What a contrast between our gods and the God's of Babylon. And finally, Daniel gets to the interpretation. And in here, somewhat difficult to understand, but he he provides the the four Aramaic words that are a sequence of weights. And Daniel links these weights with uh, verbs that uh, sound similar. There's no hermeneutics class on this, all right? So don't, don't look at a Bible college to figure out how this is a divine interpretation. God gives the mystery, and God gives the interpretation. First word, mene, that, that's a weight worth a 60 shekels. As a verb, it sounds like numbered. And Daniel ex, ex, explains that the day's of the king's kingdom are numbered and brought to an end. The repetition of Mene emphasizes the speed, that this this isn't happening a long time from now. This is happening soon, quickly. His kingdom is going to be terminated. Tekel, this is an Aramaic cognate for the Hebrew shekel. It, It sounds like the verb for wade, And Belshazzar has been weighed by God, and he has been found morally deficient. And uh, Parson, this is a half weight. As a verb, it means divided, uh, since you divide uh, a weight in two to get a half weight. Not the idea of uh, Belshazzar's kingdom being divided amongst the Medes and Persians. Not not that idea. Divided into pieces. Smashed. Destroyed. And also this uh, word has the same consonants as Persians. Another wordplay going on here as the kingdom is given over to the Medes and the Persians. And then then as we keep moving in the story, we see that uh, Belshazzar makes good on his promise. You might be wondering, why would he react in such a way to, this is some very bad news for him and his kingdom. But you got to remember, in this culture, it's, it's better to know what a dream or mystery means, even if it doesn't mean something all that pleasant, than to still be wondering in fear and uh, trembling over it. You know, despite Daniel's objection to it, Daniel is given all the honor that the king promised here. He's made third in command in the nation. I'm confident Daniel didn't get too excited about this, didn't get his new business cards printed, didn't change his email signature. He knows what he just prophesied, and it's not going to last for long. And in the last few verses here, we see that God makes good 
on the handwriting and the interpretation. Belshazzar is killed that very night. And it says, verse 31, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Here we see it's emphasized this is real historical events. You know, one could verify by consulting eyewitnesses or children of eyewitnesses. This isn't just a, a, a fairy tale. These actually happened. God actually did this. So, so after all the ups and downs, along with the twists and turns of the story, what, what did we learn? So as I was uh, studying this and uh, discovered the three truths, and I, I was trying to assign verses to them. You'll see in my points, you can put, put up the first one. I, I didn't because as, as I kept going, I would have had to almost uh, put the whole chapter after e each of them as they're all weaved in and through this entire uh, story. So, so first one, we see that our God is sovereign, bringing down even the mightiest nation. Uh, this truth is uh, present in this passage, not, not just in the final verses, but it pervades the entire story. God provides the mysterious handwriting. God provides the interpretation through Daniel. And finally, God fulfills what he said would happen by bringing down the mighty Babylon. The original readers uh, of this uh, scroll would have seen all the great countries, empires around them as Jews. They would have been disappointed concerning their uh, post-exilic uh, national status. Uh, in the face of these great powers, uh, they would be tempted to believe the narrative that those kings and empires out there, they're the ones in control. They have the political power. They, they would be tempted to doubt God's power. And, and how could the true people of God be relegated to political and national irrelevance? They would look at the fancy buildings uh, for the, all these other gods and then look at what was left of the temple uh, in Jerusalem, certainly not measuring up to Solomon's temple. Uh, this story was designed to remind such readers that our God is sovereign. He can bring down even mighty Babylon. He, he is in full control whether leaders recognize his power or whether they do not. And God is true to his word. He judged his people for, his, for their sin, sending them into exile. And he turns around and judges the wicked nations for their sin too. God is in full control. You can't miss that truth here in this narrative. Do not believe the lies of the evil one. Our God is sovereign over all. And that includes your life. That includes my life. There is no detail that escapes him. I, I pray that this truth uh, provides you hope on the frustrating, sometimes even dark days of, of your soul. When, when you struggle to see where things are going in your life. You struggle to see what God is doing. You know, may you look in faith to our sovereign God who has proved himself over and over again as we see in this passage. Our God is sovereign, bringing down even the mightiest nation. Uh, this week in group, I'd ask you to, to please share how you have seen our sovereign over all God active in your life. You, you need to be reminded, I need to be reminded of where God is, is working in my life, in your life, and your covenant brothers and sisters in Jesus. They, they need to hear that too, that they, just like you, are tempted to doubt that God is in full control of all things. They need to hear 
your testimony of God's sovereignty active in your life. And in bringing down this mighty nation, we see a truth concerning who God lifts up and who God makes low. Here it is. Our God humbles the proud, but exalts the humble. The humbling in this passage is certainly front and center, but it's not solely found in the result, the death of the king by the invading army, his kingdom given over to another. The humbling begins with the hand appearing and fingers writing on the wall. Remember, the king, Belshazzar, has no control over what's happened. He's taken by surprise, freaked out. He doesn't know what it means, and his wise men can't tell him what it means. And he's humbled even farther as he's uh, freaked out by this mystery. I highlighted for you earlier, literally in verse 6, the knots of his loins are loosened. So we don't really use that language today. The translations give a little bit interesting. ESB, limbs gave way. Uh, the net Bible, joints of his hips gave way. NIV, legs uh, became weak. Uh, but, but I take it to be insinuating a little bit more than that. That basically incontinence overtakes him. He goes rushing to the bathroom. And look at how the rest of this passage actually plays on that. The queen mother uh, says she knows someone who can literally loosen the king's knots. It's funny. Meaning solve the riddle mystery puzzle. But a very interesting expression that the narrator uh, chose to include. And then the king himself sounds like a buffoon asking Daniel to literally loosen his knots. let, Let me read what Al Walters says. We must look at the story from the point of view of an Aramaic-speaking Israelite who has suffered much at the hands of the Babylonians. The Babylonian king is described as first insulting the Israel God and then when the latter responds with the mysterious handwriting on the wall as being so frightened that the knots of his loins were untied. The spectacle is enough to elicit hoots of derisive laughter on the part of the audience. We can imagine the audience's uproarious laughter as the hapless pagan king unwittingly makes a fool of himself before the prophet of the Lord, before whom the great kings of the earth can at a moment's notice be reduced to figures of fun preparatory to being brought to justice." Uh, th- that's funny. The, the king is still on his, his throne at that point in the narrative, but, but not for long. His, his kingdom and his life last mere hours after this feast. God humbles the proud. Uh, and this episode is meant to be compared and contrasted with the story from the previous chapter. Uh, God humbled the proud King Nebuchadnezzar there, but it produced humility in Nebuchadnezzar, and God eventually exalted him. Belshazzar did not learn the lesson, and his opportunities are up. It's also contrasted with that uh, of the other character in this passage, Daniel, God's humble servant. Daniel is humble. He's not looking for fame, power, money. He, he receives it because he, in humility, listens to God instead of uh, trying to be God and claim this honor for himself. But, but this passage doesn't, doesn't stop with a shout out to, you know, go King Nebuchadnezzar, go Daniel, be humble like them. Ultimately, the humility of Daniel, the humility of Nebuchadnezzar point to Jesus. Their humility is good, but it, as what we see in this book, doesn't fix the problem uh, with the people of God. They're still in exile. Their hearts 
are still far from the one true God. Look at the ultimate display of humility the humility that transforms the people of God. Uh, Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of the servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar point us to the humility of Jesus, He set aside his divine rights, prerogatives, and became truly human, experiencing suffering just as we do, along with temptation, just without sinning. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. So so how does this apply to us? After seeing this warning against pride, in the life of Belshazzar, and seeing the humility of uh, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, which, which points ultimately to Jesus's humility. Where do you need to grow in humility? Well, let, let me warn you: the the world uh, does not value such humility. Although it can spot a sickening degree of pride in individuals. The world likes titles, impressive resumes, creative spins on perceived failure, likes blaming others. It does not value humility. But humility makes us attractively distinct uh, from the world. Lastly, oh, we, we cannot ignore the truth revealed about our God in this passage uh, to Belshazzar in his bringing out the vessels of God's temple and God's response to that, that our God is holy, so don't treat him as common. God was not putting up with Belshazzar's sacrilege and parading out the temple vessels, claiming that honor for himself, using these temple vessels dedicated to God in drinks dedicated to false gods. Our God is a jealous God. He deserves all the glory and he will not share it with another. He is holy, set apart, sacred. So don't treat him like he's common. What is common in this passage? Well, well, that's the other gods. The author employs that repetition of gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, portraying them as faceless, nameless, artificial, powerless, and lifeless, but not our God. He is holy, set apart, sacred. He is not putting up with the blasphemous words and actions against him in this passage. So so how does this apply to us? Well, Well, you may gleefully announce well, good thing. I don't think we have to worry about any special cups anymore. True. But, uh, you know, I'd respond, oh, you wish you only had to worry about special temple vessels dedicated to God. You see, this truth is far more comprehensive to all of life and treating God as holy, not common, than just uh, temple vessels 2,500 years ago. How do we treat our holy, set-apart, nobody-like-him God as common? Well, when I was growing up, that this was often applied to like what we wear to church. 
on Sunday. And I guess I would not be treating God as holy since I'm wearing jeans and denim rhymes with devil, right? Something like that. It's close. That's what some people taught me. And, and, you know, some uh, people applied it to, you know, praying to God using King James English, that talking to God in a way different than you talk to others. That's not what we're what we're going for. That's not what we're aiming at here. A uh, focus on such external uh, preferences preoccupies one from seeing the glaring areas in our lives where we don't treat God as holy, where we treat him as common. Well, let me just pick uh, one way we, we treat God as common, uh, not holy. We, we often don't believe his judgment is all that real, except for, for the really bad people out there. When we try to locate ourselves in the story, we find a significant number of more similarities with Belshazzar than we often care to admit, especially in our attitude to God's judgment. There are warning signs all around us but do we heed them? Should have learned from the past and God's past judgment, but have we? If we see judgment, we often get, get really freaked out, but that fear doesn't necessarily lead to a faith and repentance. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, don't treat God's forbearance, God's patience, as an indication that judgment will not come. If you can see in this story that God is holy, not common, you should not presume that, that God will not judge. God, God will judge. You should not presume that you can repent and believe the gospel tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. If you're here today and you are a Christian, don't justify your sin by banking on the fact that God hasn't judged you already for it. We should have a healthy fear of God. If, living, if you're living in unrepentant sin, the sin doesn't bother you, the call of the prophets is to examine yourself and see if you are in the faith or not. Jesus when Jesus comes into your life, he changes you. You're not the same person. You start to more and more despise the sin that nailed him to the cross. God is holy and does judge sin. Don't mess with God. And just, just in case you think that God goes a little over the top on Belshazzar in this passage, let me remind you of the ultimate demonstration of God's holiness necessitating the judgment of sin. God sent his one and only son to suffer a gruesome death on the cross of being cut off from the loving presence of the Father and only experiencing his wrath against the sin of all of Jesus' people. Remember that. Think on that. Our God is holy. He is set apart. He does not look the other way at sin. You know, those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus should despise more and more the sin that sent him to Mount Calvary. That's how we grow in an understanding of God as holy not common. At the end of the day, we, we see that uh, God is sovereign and, and holy. And therefore, you know, we should respond in humility at a sight of such a God, not pride. Uh, take some time here. Uh, uh, think on God as he has revealed himself in this passage. Uh, don't just recognize him for who he is and just nod your head, but, but apply that uh, knowledge 
uh, to your heart. Enjoy him. Be amazed by him. A marvel at the view of him we've received from uh, this passage in the book of Daniel. And, and then live differently. You know, practice humility because we have seen God and realized that God is sovereign. We are not. And God is common, is holy. He is certainly not common. Uh, pray with me to that end. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are sovereign over all, that you can bring down mighty kings, mighty nations, uh, even Belshazzar and Babylon uh, in this passage. We thank you that your sovereignty applies to more than just kings and kingdoms, but applies to our lives too, that you are sovereign over all things. Uh, and we thank you that you are a holy God. You, you do not uh, put up with people dishonoring your name, sacrilege against you. I pray that we would uh, treat you as holy, that the words of our mouth and the actions of our lives would reflect that we serve a holy God, not, not a common God like the, the false gods in this passage. And, and I pray you'd give us a humility that uh, we, we would uh, see the humility of Daniel, of Nebuchadnezzar, the pride of Belshazzar, and, and ultimately want the humility of Jesus. We thank you for his uh, sacrifice on our behalf that we, we trust in him, not in our own uh, good deeds. We pray this in his name. Amen.